On June 22nd, 1941, at the beginning of World War II, there was a campaign by Nazi Germany called Operation Barbarossa. And Operation Barbarossa was, Barbarossa was the code name for the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. So on June 22nd, 1941, this siege or, or this invasion began. And the first thing that they did was to cross the border from Poland into Russia to take, uh, to take the Brest Fortress, I say Russia, the Soviet Union, to take the Brest Fortress in Brest, Belarus. Now, Brest, Belarus is right across the border from Poland. It's also situated on the main railway between Berlin and Moscow. So as you can imagine, this is a very important location, or at least it was, for both sides to have control of in the war effort. And so the Soviet Union did all they could to defend this fortress. And although they were defeated ultimately in a matter of about seven days, this resistance became a symbol for the Soviet Union in its fight against Nazi Germany. For seven days, from November or from June 22nd through the 29th, the Soviets held their ground. They successfully held off the Nazis. But after those seven days, it was just too much. The, the Soviet Union could not continue its defense. The supplies were low. Ammunition was low. The attacks had taken their toll. It was just too heavy and too much. And the Germans were able to break the defenses and take control of the fortress. Of all the, the soldiers and the family members and all who were in the fortress... Most were either killed or taken prisoner, and only a small number escaped. Now, I say that on June 29th is when the, or actually it was the next day, June 30th, when the battle was officially over, they had surrendered. I say that happened on June 30th, but that wasn't technically the end of the battle. Even after the fortress was officially taken, a few surviving defenders continued to hide in the basements and in other places to occasionally harass and injure the German soldiers. And this went on for several weeks. In isolated pockets, primarily underground, these pockets of resistance would raise up and usually they would be defeated after a while. But it caused a lot of headaches for the German army. This actually went on until well into July when they had finally rooted out all of those pockets of resistance and completely defeated the Soviet Union. In fact, what they finally did, it's interesting, they tapped into the Bug River and flooded all of the dungeons and basements and drowned the remaining resistance. When we look at the cross of Christ, we recognize that Jesus came to defeat sin and death. He shed his blood. He died so that we would not have to, not eternally, not ultimately. Through Christ, if we trust him, if we've been forgiven by his grace, sin has been defeated in our life. And yet, the question remains, who in here 
doesn't struggle with sin anymore? Which of you has completely and perfectly and finally defeated the battle of sin in your life? And of course, all of us would honestly say there are still pockets of resistance where sin raises up its nasty, dirty, evil little head and causes problems in my life. And so as we turn to Galatians chapter 5 this morning, Paul gives us this all-important command to walk by the Spirit. Not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. Because Paul full well knows about these pockets of resistance. Even though the war against sin has been won, it is over and complete. There are still battles going on here and there in our lives. And Paul knows it because Paul dealt with it in his own life. And so he says, there's got to be something that allows us to overcome, that allows us to finally win the battle, to drown out all of those pockets of resistance and be done with them forever. And the answer simply is to walk by the Spirit. Now, it's a short, simple little sentence to say, but in practice, it is anything but easy. In fact, I think the most significant question in the Christian life, the thing that we must figure out, the thing that we should spend our lives trying to work out and deal with and do, is the question, how in the world do you walk by the Spirit? And I want to spend the next several weeks, at least least through the end of February, if not beyond, depending how God works and what He does, asking this question. How do we walk by the Spirit? We, in our small groups on Sunday nights, are setting through Romans 12 through a series called True Spirituality, trying to become Romans 12 Christians. And what is it that Chip Ingram is teaching about and what is it that we're discussing in those groups? We're simply asking, how do we walk by the Spirit? Romans 12 is the spiritually walked Life. That's probably not very good grammatically, but you know what I mean. That is walking by the Holy Spirit. We will be purposely walking through this series, hopefully in tandem or to go along with what our small groups are talking about. So that if you're in a small group, this will add to it, hopefully. And if you're not in a small group, you will be able to, at least to a point experience a little bit of what we're experiencing there. And hopefully all of us together will walk by the Holy Spirit. If you'll turn to Galatians chapter 5 with me, let us read verses 16 through 25 together. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. And when you've turned there, if you can, would you please stand In honor of God's word as we read this. And Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desire, the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. 
But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Please be seated. I want to give you, in the next couple of weeks, three pieces to the truth of walking by the Spirit. And then we'll move on from there, looking at other aspects of how Jesus walked by the Spirit. How we are to walk worthily, or worthy of our calling in Christ. But for the next couple of weeks, I want to look at these verses here, 16 through 25. And see the three pieces to the truth of walking by the Spirit. And today, as we talk about sin and overcoming sin, I want you to know that first and foremost, if you walk by the Spirit, you will overcome sin. Walk by the Spirit and you will overcome sin. How do you win those battles? How do you drown all that sin out? Well, this answer is once again simple. It is to walk by the Spirit. Let's look at the language here in verses 16 and 17. In verse 16, it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify. Now, when, when there's a command given, a lot of times they don't add the, you walk by the Spirit, but it's implied. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. We imply, you walk by the Spirit. And then he says, and you will not gratify well, both, both the, the, the pronoun there and the verb are plural. It's you all. You all. So he's not just speaking to the Galatians here. He's not just speaking to one of you, to the really bad Christians, or even to the really good ones, the ones who are righteous and holy and the ones who read their Bibles every day and are able to do this, or at least in show. Paul says... Y'all walk by the Spirit. Or as they say in East Tennessee, Ewans. Ewans walk by the Spirit. It's plural. So, so what I want us all to do right now is just strap in. Don't look at your neighbor. Don't look at your spouse. Don't look at your children. Look in the mirror, metaphorically. Strap in and get ready for the journey. Because this is for you. You and you and you and you and you and you and every you and, and you. The second thing I want us to see is that when he says walk by the Spirit, there is such a thing called a habitual present. Now, what's it mean to be habitual or to do something as a habit? What does that mean? To do it over and over and over and over and over. Remember the passage that says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. 
Those are habitual presents in the, in the present tense over and over and over. So knock, keep knocking, keep asking, keep seeking. And this is what Paul is saying here. Keep walking. It's not a one-time thing. So he's not just talking about salvation here. This isn't just coming to Jesus, saying, I believe, because we could say it's walking the aisle. That's it. And I'm done. And that's not it, Paul says. There is much more. This is a lifelong pursuit to walk, continue to walk, always walking, never-ending walking by the Spirit. Now, this word, the desires of the flesh... It's singular. Too often we villainize desires. We say it's wrong to want. It's wrong to desire. It's wrong to to feel a, a pull or a draw or an attraction to something. If I don't just want to read my Bible every day and that's all I ever want to do... If I don't just want to be on my knees praying all the time, if I don't just want to be at church every day, every time the doors open, if I want anything else but that, there must be something wrong with me, something deficient in my Christianity. And so what I want to point out, because the manuscripts do just say the desire of the flesh in, in the singular tense, is that I think Paul is talking about something else than just everything that you want. Everything that you desire. It's just wrong to, be, to desire things. It's wrong to want to eat a good meal after church today. To have food that tastes good. It's, it's wrong to want a spouse. It's wrong to desire to sleep in in the morning. It's wrong to want relationships. Sex. We, we are made to feel guilty for wanting anything other than, you know, I just want God all the time. Did you know that a desire for relationship, a desire for food, a desire for, for water, a desire to sleep can be a desire that honors God, that glorifies Him because you seek those things as a gift from your Creator and you use them to reflect back to Him. When Paul says this, he doesn't mean that every desire we have is bad. God has placed within us, through His Spirit, intrinsic desires that are good and pleasing to Him. The desire to have the best and be happy is good because it demands that we go to the best, namely God who is the best, so that we might have the best. The desire for relationship is good because it demands that we love God and we love others. We are not created to be alone. What did God say in Genesis 1? It is not good for man to be, what is it? Alone. It's good to want food because God created the body to need nourishment. It's good to want sleep because God rested, did he not? And again, he created our bodies to need rest so that we would be very aware every day of how truly weak and fragile these bodies are. Every time we go to the dinner table and every time we lay our head down, it reminds us, you are not God. You're not God. Your bodies aren't self-sustaining. Good to want sex because it's a gift from God to be greatly enjoyed by a husband and a wife. God made us as sexual creatures to enjoy that aspect of life in the God-ordained structure of marriage. It's good to want that because God made you to desire that. In fact, I would say that all sinful desires 
are merely a perversion of the good desires that God has placed within us. Don't vilify the desires. The desires aren't the issue. It's how we fulfill them. Where do we go to fulfill those desires? I like how C.S. Lewis says, it's not that we desire too much. It's that we desire too little. We are far too satisfied in how we fulfill our desires. We don't go to the best, namely God himself, to fulfill the desires of our life. When we eat, as Paul says, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. We eat for his glory. We eat in gratitude. When we, when we desire a relationship, we do it in a way that honors him. And we look for total satisfaction in our relationship with him. Paul is communicating that all desires are emphatically not wrong. They are only wrong when fulfilled in a sinful, ungodly way. That is the desire of the flesh. So we can say that when Paul talks about the desire of the flesh, he's not talking about all those different desires that we have. He's talking about the desire of the flesh to get what it wants outside of God. To get what it wants outside of God's will and God's way. That is the desire of the flesh. And what is the desire of the flesh but merely the will and desire of Satan? That's the issue here. The desire of the flesh is doing what Satan wants. Now I'm not saying that we have a bunch of Satan worshippers in here. And usually people don't think, I wonder what Satan would have me do right You know, the, the WWSD bracelet. Did you get one of those? It's not, it's, it's not a cognitive I wonder what Satan would do right now. That's what I want to do. The will of Satan is anything that is opposed to God. And that's what the will of the flesh is. It's desire. In 1 John 3, 8, John says, The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The will of the flesh is the will of Satan. But we are called to something else, are we not, church? And so we see, what, what is this issue of spirit versus flesh and flesh versus spirit? Well, the issue is this. The spirit and the flesh are mutually exclusive. You can't ride the fence. You can't have it both ways. You can't fulfill both. Because they are absolutely and completely against one another. The spirit is completely against the desire of the flesh. Because it's the desire of Satan, right? And, and are God and Satan enemies? Yes, of course they are. They're not equal enemies. Satan is also just a pawn in God's ultimate plan. But they're enemies. Satan is the adversary. He's the enemy. And the will of the flesh is the will of Satan. And so the spirit and the flesh cannot go together. There's, there's no compromise There's a battle raging inside each of us, an inner conflict, a clash of the titans, if you will. Spirit versus flesh, each in its own corner. And of course, God has already won the war. The Spirit has already won. And if you are a believer, He has won in your life. He has decidedly and finally and eternally won the war. There is no question. This is not a battle for your soul, per se, if you're a believer. It's a battle for your integrity. It's a battle for your ministry. 
It's a battle for the identity of the bride of Christ in front of the world who is watching. It's a battle that we might be successful in reaching our community and our culture. It's a battle for your satisfaction, for your joy, for your peace and rest. That's what the battle is for. And it's a battle that we must care about. We must engage in. And we must fight every single day. Because every day, the flesh, which once again, its desire is the desire of Satan. And what does Satan desire to do but to kill, steal, and destroy? Satan every day is seeking to corrupt your ministry and to destroy your effectiveness in the kingdom, thereby taking you completely out of the game. And you know what it might do? It might take others with you, believers and unbelievers alike. Because the unbelieving world is watching and saying, if that's what it's about, then I don't want it. I don't need it. It's fake. It's phony. And why would I want that? There's enough fake and phony stuff in the world for me to be a part of already. But my friends, it's not just a battle of the will because we could just talk about the will today. What you suck it up and do. What you're willing to do no matter what you want. This is not just a battle of the wills. It's a battle of desires, your desires. Once again, desires are not bad, correct? It's how we fulfill them and who we go to to satisfy them. Look at verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. So there's that, they're always at odds. For these are opposed to each other. Listen to this. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now what does that mean? Is it the spirit keeping me from doing the things I want to do? Or is the flesh keeping me from doing the things I want to do? Which is it? Well, the answer is both. They're at odds. If you're walking by the Spirit, it's the flesh seeking to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And if you're walking by the flesh, it's the Spirit trying to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And the operative word there is what you want to do. Not just what you have to do, not what you're commanded to do, not what it's your duty to do. It's what you want to do. It's a battle of desires. God did not sacrifice his own son so that he could merely change what you do. He wants to change who you are. Let me say that again. God did not merely send his son to die on a cross, to to suffer through all of that, so that he could merely change what you do. He did that to change who you are. He wants to change your heart and everything that it desires. And that's what it means to be born again, to be a new creation. That's what it means when he says that he'll change your heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Romans 3 says, and it's quoting the Old Testament, no one seeks God, no one desires to do good. No one in the world, that is. But if you've been changed by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then God is changing your heart from the heart of stone to the heart of flesh. And he's implanting new desires so that before you didn't want God, you didn't seek him. But now you do. And hopefully every day you want him more and more and more than anything else this world has to offer. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. 
The battle that we must fight is not to let the desires of our flesh win out over the desires of the Spirit. And so God is working in you, both so that you can will, you can do it, but not just so that you'll do it, so that you'll want to do it, to will and to work for His good pleasure. So that it's not just the duty of your life, but it's the desire of your life. And if this is the battle, if the battle is to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh, if the two are absolutely opposed to one another and one is right and one is not, one the Bible tells us to do and the other the Bible tells us not to do, we are to walk by the Spirit and not to walk by the flesh. The question is, then how in the world do I walk by the Spirit? How do I do that? Such an unattainable and lofty command that God gives to us through His Word and who is able to do such things? Well, my friends, you are in Christ. The answer is not as hard to figure out as you might think. And, and all we have to do to get the answer is to consider our children. We had supper with the Oschlegers the other night. And Katie and I were sharing some of our woes in parenting, some of the issues and, and struggles that we've had. And one of the issues, as every parent feels and knows, is they don't always obey what we tell them to do. Now, I know we're the only ones who have kids that do that, but that's where we are. We tell them to do something and they don't do it. So we tell them again and they don't do it. Now, we do discipline our children. But how do we get them just to obey? How do we get them to that place where they want to do what's right? Because isn't that what we want? We want them to want to do what's right. And we got some great advice. And, and Jessica said this, and I'm sure Patrick would have said it if she wouldn't have. You need to make the choice very clear, and you need to give them the opportunity to make the choice. Hopefully I'm saying this correctly. If I don't, please stand up and correct me. But, but this is basically what they said. They said, explain to them very clearly the consequences of each choice. If you choose to obey, this is what you get. And if you choose to obey or disobey, this is what you get. One's a blessing and one's a consequence. Now, it's your choice. You can do either one. You have every right to choose. But just know, this is what each choice gets. And at first, they may make the wrong choices, but then you have to be consistent with the consequence. Follow through. Make sure they understand that one choice gets good and the other choice is not so good. It doesn't bring blessing. It doesn't bring joy. It brings shame and consequence and hardship. The key is in making sure they understand the full benefit of obedience. And hopefully when the child sees how beneficial it is to, uh, to them personally, when they obey, how much they profit from doing it, they will desire obedience. That's it, my friends. That is the answer. And maybe that's a little confusing now, so let me explain. I think too often we disassociate obedience from the reward when it comes to our service to God. If, if I obey for how it benefits me, then, then it just strips my obedience of all meaning. That's wrong. God doesn't like it, so I shouldn't do that. And that is not what the Bible teaches. When does God ever call people to obey Him without giving them the benefits of obedience? 
And this is true all over Scripture. You go back to the Old Testament. When he was creating his covenant with Israel, what did he do? He set up the expectations. And then he explained to them the full benefits of being in covenant with him. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will take care of you. I will protect you. I will give you a land flowing with milk and honey. I will never leave you or forsake you. You will never have to fear anything. And we move to the New Testament. Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? And what's the most famous and well-known verse in all the Bible? John 3.16. Everybody say it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Why do we believe? So that we will not perish but have eternal life. There is the consequence and the benefit right there inherently in that one verse. God is in the business of making, maintaining, and renewing covenant with his people. And he always does it by explaining to his children the benefits and the consequences. So how do I ensure spiritual victory in the battle of the two wills in my life? My friends, it's when we see Christ as the apex of all treasures. When we experience the the fullness of joy that is found in His presence. I come to know the all-consuming satisfaction found in doing His will. When we see His beauty, we sang about that this morning. You are so good to me. You heal my broken heart. You are my Father in heaven. You are beautiful, my sweet, sweet song. Do you believe that this morning? And do you believe that walking by the Spirit connects you to that beauty, connects you to that goodness, connects you to that satisfaction, that sufficiency? It's not a redoubling of our efforts, uh, bearing down and trying harder because I've been there. I've done that Christian life thing. And, and, And Patrick is so right this morning. Sometimes the joy isn't there and so we do the diligence, we do the obedience and we we get to the joy. But my friends, if it's only duty if it's only diligence, if it's only redoubling our efforts, eventually that fizzles out. I get tired, I get worn out, and I say, it's not working, I quit. It never lasts. And it's only when something changes, when it's different, when it's not just the duty, but now all of a sudden I see him in a whole different light. I realize the treasure and, and the, the joy that he is to me. I realize what I have in Christ, all of the unblushing promises that he makes to us. And my friends, do you know what those promises are? Have you gone to his word and says, what is the benefit of following Jesus? Why should I walk by the Spirit? And from beginning to end, it is unflinching in the boldness of its promises to us as his children. His favor toward us, his blessing overflowing, his goodness that never ends, his love that is everlasting, his grace that forgives all sin, his presence which never leaves us or forsakes us. And it doesn't mean that life is never difficult. This isn't a health, wealth gospel where if you just believe enough and you just change your mind enough and if you just convince yourself enough, then everything will be good and fine. That is not what his word says. This life will knock you off your feet. 
It will break your heart. It will do everything it can to tear you down. These bodies, they need food. They need rest. They get weary and worn and tired. They get sick. They hurt. They ache. They age. Because, my friends, this is not it. My satisfaction is nowhere near this world. Because this world only lets me down. It's good for a while. Sin is really good for a time. But then it all comes crashing down. This life has some pretty good things to offer. And God has provided many things in this life. Family, friends, church. And it's good. But it's not really good. Not like he is really good. And so I guard myself from treasuring anything else over him. I guard myself from being satisfied in the little that this life offers so that I'm not available to enjoy all that he offers. I recognize the beauty of his presence, the reward of his mercy, and the delight of his eternity. The joy of his salvation. So I'm not calling you to more drudgery and determination this morning. This sermon is an invitation to taste and see that the Lord is good.